I'm back, and this is Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin, and this is hour two of the show. And in this hour, we are talking about decolonizing mental health services and therapy. Joining me in this hour is Dr. Jennifer Mullen. She is the author of Decolonizing Therapy, Oppression, Historical Trauma, and Politicizing Your Practice. Also in this hour, joining me is Dr. Sheena Young. She is the author of Body Rights, a holistic healing and embodiment workbook for Black survivors of sexual trauma. Welcome, Dr. Mullen, and welcome, Dr. Young. I want to start uh, with you, Dr. Mullen. This word decolonizing, uh, big word. Help us understand. Give us the fifth grade, you know, uh, level definition of decolonizing, specifically how you use it in the context of mental health. Absolutely. And I love this question because it's so true, right? It's such a large word, but really the meaning is so deep and clear. So colonization as a whole, right, refers to any sort of methods where people are expressed, people are exploited and oppressed, particularly indigenous people globally, whether we're talking about Africa and the motherlands, whether we're talking about South America or people indigenous to what is now known as America, right? So if there's some form of oppression and there's some form of exploitation, especially the way that we have dealt with, with Trail of Cheers, residential schools, migration trauma, transatlantic slave trade, right? So all of this has an impact on a person, who they are, what they think, and what they believe. And so when I talk about decolonizing therapy, what we're talking about is looking at not just what happened in childhood, not just how we were raised, not just what's going on in the present, but understanding and noticing that what happened in the past, especially our historical past, given our cultural present, has an impact on who we are, how we move, how we do therapy, whether we get therapy, and whether we survive a traffic stop. Let me ask you this: the, the 2020 report that was, uh, you know, developed by the American Psychological Association, unpack that for us. Why was that study done? And give us the highlights of the findings. Yeah, well, I think that what's important to understand is that so often what we're seeing are that people of color, people of marginalized identity continue to not receive the care they need or are under-reporting, air quotes here. Now, under-reporting, I think, is really important to look at because, number one, who is under-reporting? Is it that we don't trust system and structures, <laughs> right? Is it that we're not getting the kind of care we need? So some of what that report is talking about are that so often the therapy and the treatment is not multiculturally competent, that it's not taking into account people's cultures, practices, histories, and it's certainly not taking into account a very dominant Eurocentric lens, meaning a very white lens, right? And in the way that myself as psychologists and probably Dr. Sheena and many others are given very one note ways of helping and healing rather than really taking into account the holistic person and their experience. All right, so Dr. Uh, Young, you wrote a book. Your book is about uh, you know Black survivors of sexual trauma. So when I think about Black survivors, and I think about sexual trauma, that's another area where historically we know there's been under-reporting. Uh, and we know that women in particular who do report uh, acts of sexual violence uh, in many instances aren't believed. 
and they become the villain themselves rather than the victim. They somehow, you know, become the person that is villainized. Is any of that changing? And how would a decolonized practitioner approach someone that has been the victim of sexual violence? Yes, thank you so much for this question. You know, my hope is that things are changing. However, the numbers continue to be staggering. So according to the National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey, one in five women in the U.S. experience completed or attempted rape and during their lifetime. One in four Black girls will be sexually abused before the age of 18. And one in five Black women are survivors of rape, according to the National Center on Violence Against Women in the Black Community. We also see research that has shown that Black girls and women 12 years and older experience higher rates of sexual assault and rape than white, Asian, and Latinx counterparts. And as the identities become more layered and intersecting, our transgendered and non-binary siblings are victimized at rates with almost half, 47%, reporting being sexually assaulted at some time in their lives. So these numbers are already staggering, but in my opinion, they're likely much higher for some of the reasons we've been talking about. Naturally and given systemically rooted ruptures between the Black community and law enforcement agencies, as well as the taboo of discussing sexual trauma, the numbers are likely higher. There has been some suggestion that for every 15 Black women who were raped, only one reports her assault. And so it's really important to be ready when folks come forward to seek help in being able to provide care that sees them in their wholeness versus care that that sees them as broken, right? So my approach to uh, healing divests from the westernized blueprint, westernized approaches tend to bolster systemic infrastructures of power and control. They imprint colonization and white supremacy. They condition us to externalize our intuition. You just said a lot of really important things, but I'm I'm sitting home. I'm sitting here thinking about my 92 year old aunt who's going to say I didn't understand anything she said. So say that again. And like, again, like if you're telling this to fifth graders. Yes. So the last part of what I'm sorry, go ahead. The last part of what I said regarding westernized approaches, it tends to emphasize power and control and retaining that um, within the white community. And also it conditions us to, to give on, away. Give me, example our- of, give me an example of that. Like if, if some you're saying, uh, you know, uh, emphasize white power and control, give, give us an example of how that manifests itself in a therapy session. Yes, for sure. So typically when you go to therapy, you're seeing an expert, right? Someone who knows better about your experience. These are some of the reasons why Black folks struggle to um, seek help and entrust providers who are offering mental health therapy. So instead of helping a survivor become more in touch and intimate with their own sense of intuition, agency, 
power, choice, dominion over their own bodies, we've been conditioned to look for folks to tell us, look for the experts and the providers, the doctors, the therapists to tell us what's best for us. And that continues to retain power and control for the dominant culture. And so the work that you do, Dr. Mullen, you actually go out and teach other therapists, right? That's part of what I do. Yes. Yes. Okay. And so, you know, walk us through what that would look like. You know, do you go into a therapist's office and do an evaluation to determine if they, you know, like what methods are they using? Uh, and how do you determine, you know, that they are reinforcing some of these, you know, Eurocentric views or white supremacy ideals? Yeah, well, I think that part of it is even making sure that in the way that I'm, quote unquote, like assessing them, or working with them that I'm also not using the master's tools, right? So part of that initially starts with me and how I walk in and whether or not I'm walking in humanizing, understanding that all of us, including myself, are coming up with, a, have, have already a lot of privilege in some way, shape or form and ways and places in which we're acting that out and things that we need to unlearn. And so part of what I might do in working with an organization, a nonprofit, a university counseling center, is helping them to look at the ways in which they other, as I think as Dr. Sheena was saying, like other the client, right? And how we use this sort of medical model, how mm -hmm. everything starts to be very diagnosed, pathologized, like this person is, as an example, bipolar, air quotes, this person is depressed, rather than looking at a person as, well, this person is going through being unhoused, they're struggling with finances, they have an elder at home who has dementia, Alzheimer's, and two small children, and they're working three part-time jobs, and this person is undocumented. That's a lot, right? That's a lot to have on a plate. And so part of that is A, humanizing the therapist, the helper, the healer, and then them also taking that frame and also humanizing the people that they're serving. And so some of that might look like language, right? Like what language are we using to talk about people? Another part of that is fees and schedules. What are we- oh, hold on, let, me, let me stop you there. So rather than, as you said, air quote, use the- the label bipolar, you, you know, identify with that individual, everything that's going on in their life from the, yeah. the financial struggles they have to the familial issues that, you know, they may be dealing with. How does that get you to, does that get you to the same place though, in terms of what your treatment recommendations and strategies will be for that individual? Yeah. Yeah. The answer to that is no, it doesn't get you to the same. <laughs> okay. right? That's a great question because it doesn't get you to it. And I think that's what we're getting at, that there needs to be an overhaul. I've been known to say, and I say this with a lot of love for my field, right? And the people that I serve even more, that current mental health structures are a bit outdated and expired. It's an ointment that is needed, we need, right, because a lot of, we know we're in a mental health crisis. We know that this is going to increase. We know that people, especially people of color or people at and below, below poverty level are underreporting. What we don't know is how we can get them to another level in a stage, right, where they're actually enjoying this work. And so, no, we're looking to- well, Let's go back to that example. So you told me 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, therapist A that, you know, makes the diagnosis of bipolar disorder versus right. therapist B that's been through your training program that now sees that whole person will have different treatment plans, strategies, et cetera. What yeah. will they look like? What What's plan A yeah. or you know, therapist A is going to look like versus therapist B? Therapist A is going to sort of say what's wrong with you. Therapist B is looking more at what's right what's working, what are the strengths, and what are the strengths that we're not pulling in to this work together. Therapist B is also saying, does coming to this office work for you? Do you need me to meet you somewhere? Therapist B is saying, what is your religion, spirituality, identity, and how can we bring in those protective factors or people, whether it's an imam, a priest, a a santera, right? Like who can we bring in to support your healing? So therapist B is also not attempting to fix it all fix it all (laughs) on their own. They're attempting to be a co-creator, right? And a co-helper and healer. And so the goal is not treatment like the medical model and like therapist A, the goal is we're really moving towards healing and you have that innately in you. Okay, that's, you're right. Totally divergent paths, (laughs) totally divergent ways of, you know, uh, looking at this individual and then deciding what's going to be helpful to the individual. But I'm sitting here thinking, and again, this is through my westernized lens, right? And I'm not a psychologist, but, you know, we've been told that bipolar disorder is a very serious mental health issue uh, that could cause someone to be self-injurious, injurious, or could, you know, cause injury to others, uh, and might require medication. So when we come forward, I want to talk about, you know, if that person has what we traditionally think of as serious mental health issues, is bringing in those other people and some of those other techniques that you mentioned going to be enough for that person to achieve the kind of healing that they need? Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm back. And in this hour, I'm joined by Dr. Jennifer Mullen. She's the author of Decolonizing Therapy, Oppression, Historical Trauma, and Politicizing Your Practice. Also in this hour, Dr. Sheena Young is here. She's the author of Body Rights, a Holistic Healing and Embodiment Workshop for Black Survivors of Sexual Trauma. Okay, Dr. Uh, Mullen, before the break, we were talking about these two divergent pathways that therapists might take with regard to an individual that one has determined is bipolar, uh, but therapist B has looked at the person and all the things that's going on in their life from their financial issues to their family issues. And so my question is about, you know, when we think of bipolar and we've been taught through our Western lenses that people with bipolar may need... uh, Medication, you know, they they ha- they may need some kind of uh, you know referral or prescription from an MD, a psychiatrist. What do you say to those therapists or those mental health practitioners that say, yeah, we can see the whole person, but at the end of the day, if that person doesn't get that medication, they're not going to be able to live their best life and to be stable in terms of their mental health. 
Yeah, well, um, the reality is that mental health is not a neutral term, right? Who gets mental health, what they get access to, whether or not they even get medication is a huge topic anyway within our field. And so in this decolonial movement or decolonizing our therapy, we're not anti-medication. It's much more about really looking through a different lens and asking whether we've also exhausted all these other options or whether these other options that may be more holistic in nature and just as relevant and just as worthy, even if they're not identified as such by the World Mental Health Organization, right? Because we've been using them for eons and thousands of years ancestrally, whether or not they need to be used in correlation with the medication for a period of time. And so while we're on this journey of redefining and re-understanding mental health, we're also asking people to take mental health seriously, but to also look at the ways in which poverty, system, structures, as you were saying before, oppression, racial trauma, whether that is also having an impact on someone's well-being and whether or not they're having manic, depressive, or psychotic episodes. And I'll ask you, Dr. Young, how is this approach uh, being received by your colleagues? You know, I'm not sure how it's being received by my colleagues. I think people are really interested and curious, but what's happening is so many of us have been educated according to the Eurocentric healing standards. And so many of us are also undoing and unraveling our ways of holding space for ourselves and also our community members. What I know is that my the folks that I hold space for and my community are saying that they are discovering their relationships with their intuition, their abilities to trust themselves. They are leaning into ancestral support. They're in connection with the lands in ways that they have never been before and, and haven't been modeled to them. And ultimately, they begin to trust themselves more than um, in traditional forms of therapy. What are you finding, Dr. Mullen? Uh, you go out and teach this decolonized uh, method of practice to other practitioners. Uh, is this something that you're finding is being readily accepted? Or you know, is the American Psychological Association, are they accepting this or are you getting pushback? Yeah, a little bit of everything. And, I, and I'm, I welcome the pushback because I think without it, we don't also have a little bit of that passion and fire to kind of speak to our 20 something odd years experience. And I was a clinician dealing with nothing but trauma for 25 years. And so um, I just did a keynote for the American Psychological Association earlier this month. The president was talking about decolonizing and has a TED talk on it, a president of the Psychological Association, Dr. Tama Bryant. And so I do believe more than ever, psychology as a whole is starting to become open to the possibility of what else is possible since what we got so far isn't necessarily <laughs> working statistically and in the front lines and in the fields. So where, where's the pushback coming from? Is there a particular, uh, you know, portion of the practice? Uh, where are you seeing it? Yeah, um, I'm seeing it, A, with usually people that have been in practice for 30, 40 years, perhaps. And, and we honor that, right? I honor their, their intelligence, their lineage of the work they've done, but also people that are sort of... Um, 
trying to not use the word boxed in, we're going to use boxed in anyway. <laughs> People that are sort of very set into ways like I'm a CBT therapist or I'm a psychodynamic therapist where they have one particular practice and theory that they mm-hmm. use consistently. And this is sort of, imagine someone taking your world apart and saying, I want you to consider some other possibility. So of course there's some pushback, but I have to say, Also, when people start to look at themselves, when they start looking at how generational trauma has impacted them as psychologists, there starts to be a bit of an opening and there starts to be a shift um, and a welcoming of wondering, again, what else is possible? I know the issue of generational trauma has come up a lot, uh, particularly around this conversation we're having in this country around reparations uh, and looking at generational racial trauma that Black people, descendants of slaves, have uh, experienced. How are you finding, if you if this comes up in your practice, Dr. Young, this, this acknowledgement that Black people can experience or can be walking around with this trauma that is from you know, mother, father, grandparents, great-grandparents, all the way back to, you know, chattel slavery. Yes, absolutely. This is one of my favorite things to talk about because my work really centers the body. And as we know, healing from racial, sexual, intergenerational, and ancestral trauma can take us out of our bodies. So it shows up in dysregulated nervous systems where we're suspended in fight, flight, freeze, submit, and even tend in befriend modes. Um, And intergenerational trauma is really interesting in all the ways that it shows up in our DNA, in our bodies, it shows up as disease. It shows up in the ways that we think about ourselves, our interpersonal patterns and repetition of patterns, for example, substance abuse in our family systems. It shows up in our relationship to ourselves and others and also spiritually, right? So um, I think this is really an important part of the work and uh, for me, central in the, the lens of decolonizing healing. We spend so much talking, so much time talking about intergenerational trauma and not as much on the intergenerational healing aspects, how to feel free and at home in your body. Mm-hmm. And I want to ask you, uh, Dr. Mo, in your book, the last uh, piece of the title is politicizing your practice. What does that mean? How do you politicize your practice? Yeah, um, my loving response to that was, how do you not? <laughs> you know, cheesy as it sounds. Um, I, I like to always tell people, now people get up in arms with the whole political piece, understandably, right? You just read the news before. We know, We know how dicey that can be. But if we really, again, shift the perspective, everything is political, especially if you're in a politicized body, a black body, a brown body, a bigger body, a disabled body, right? A trans body. Then even if we don't want it to be political, it just is, right? Whether we have clean running water, whether or not our pronouns are utilized, all political, right? Whether or not your mother had health care when you were born, political. All of it is political. And so the invitation is we may not be able to, per se, decolonize a whole field because the field is inherently 
um, riddled with white body supremacy <laughs> and racism, but we can begin on that journey by starting to politicize our practices, right? And starting to look at the ways in which, again, we're using a colonizer's or master's lens, the ways in which some of the theories that we're utilizing work for groups of people that perhaps have one note issues. But what about people who have abuse and alcoholism three, four, five generations back, right? What about people whose grandmother are talking about being on a plantation? What about individuals that ha cannot go back home and grieve someone because they're deemed illegal, right? And so in politicizing our practice, we're asking the field to be held accountable. We're asking the field to mandate trainings that are not just culturally competent, no shade, <laughs> but that are deeper than culturally competent and also look at how systemic abuse and violence impacts yours, mine, all of our mental, emotional well-being and health and body, I think Dr. Shino would say. Yeah, I'm just wondering though, uh, psychology, the healthcare field in general, dominated by probably cisgender white males is it possible to have this transformation of this practice that is built on, like so many of our systems in this country, that is built on the ideology, ideals, and, and tenets of patriarchy that you know is is tied closely to again cisgender white males? I uh, want to see what's possible uh, when we come forward. KBLA Talk fifteen eighty. We're back and I'm talking with Dr. Jennifer Mullen and Dr. Sheena Young about decolonizing therapy and the mental health field in particular. And I want to leave the viewers and listeners with some practical things that they can do if they are seeking mental health or if they're already in some kind of mental health program. So I'll start with you, uh, Dr. Young. What are some of the questions that someone should be asking of their therapist if they are interested in making sure that their therapist has given thought to these issues and is trying to, you know, approach their practice uh, with some of these decolonizing concepts. Yeah. So some of the things we've been talking about today are around collaboration and approaching healing as a team. And so I encourage folks to ask the question of how do you collaborate with the people that you hold space for? What does that look like? I would encourage people to ask if their therapist has, the potential therapist has experience working with them, what they bring, their various identities, and specifically to ask them to um, describe what their theoretical orientation is, right? Like how do they understand and experience and hold space for folks? Um, and I think what that's a great. Mean, excuse me. I just want to again make sure people understand. You you've said a couple of times, hold space. So yeah. and a lot of people use that phrase. When you use it, what do you mean by it? When I'm using whole space, I am specifically talking about how we share company, how we um, how we embrace folks with where they are, how we're listening how we share time with them as they are moving through and talking through and healing through whatever they're coming to therapy with. And, and let me ask you, Dr. Mullen, I would imagine, you know, so much of, of the mental health that people receive is paid for through insurance, uh, whether it's some kind of employee, you know, benefit program that's offered at their job or it's, you know, through some private health insurance. 
Is there anything about this practice or going to a therapist that has incorporated, you know, some of the techniques that you uh, write about in your book that might cause an issue with their, you know, with the reimbursement or the payment of their therapy? Absolutely. You know, um, I think, again, this is why we're talking about like structural systemic change for the field, Um, because usually the people that are going through Medicare, Medicaid, even some folks through insurance, right? Um, the therapist, psychologist, social worker has to put in this ICD-9 code, right? <laughs> they have to answer certain questions. There has They have to be sick, air quotes, right? A person has to be sick in order for them to get any kind of support or treatment. So yes, this is why we're moving through this methodically, forcefully, consistently. And this is a long haul journey because there's also work being done strategically and systemically with insurance companies and how they collude with mental and medical health. Because I would imagine those questions you have to answer in order to get paid for your services, then you've got to use the buzzwords that are, you know, familiar to the insurance company and the words that are traditionally used by, you know, practitioners across the field. Yeah. And what we're, you know, the truth is, and when I hold consultation groups or support groups for therapists, we kind of like say therapists, healers, helpers, and space holders, you know, because people are starting to leave the field. People Mm -hmm. that are amazing at what they do, like myself and Dr. Sheena, they're like, we can't do this traditional route anymore. Not only is it not helpful and hurting and harming those and others, it's killing us, right? And so a lot of what I'm hearing shared is that, well, I just have to put down the less harmful thing, Dr. Jen, right? The least harmful diagnosis is what I'm writing down. And I can't tell you how many therapists (laughs) that are going through insurance are trying to do that anyway, because they don't want someone to have that kind of record. So we're not being authentic, right? We're we're trying to fit into this box and we understand that there's something about it that's innately violent and dangerous, especially to follow along and be connected to someone's place of work, right? Through their insurance. And there's something about it that is breaking confidentiality in many ways. However, we have to sort of fit in and fall in line. But if you leave the practice, if you leave the traditional practice because of the reasons you just stated, I assume you go into a private practice that, again, to make a living, you've got to charge people. And the majority of people, one of the biggest barriers we know to getting any kind of mental health is the lack of insurance, the lack of, you know, funding. Therapists can cost upward to two, three, four hundred, you know, beyond dollars per session. So how, you know, what about the access issue if therapists like yourselves leave and, you know, you aren't taking traditional insurance? What happens to those individuals that don't have the financial resources, the very oppressed people that you want to help who have the financial limitations? Uh, Dr. Young, how would they then seek any help? This is why the overhaul that Dr. Jen mentioned is so important. I'm grateful that there are some organizations that have been able to fill in some of the gaps with mental health funds where they offer vouchers, therapy vouchers for community members to use to decrease the cost and therefore increase access. Um, I've been in private practice for about 
five or six years and I work from an equity scale and it, it is a dance. It does require some balance, but it allows folks to choose where they're able to pay, what fee they're able to pay for sessions according to their means. And I, I think it's a start, but long, long way to go. Yeah. And, and just finally, uh, Dr. Mullen, uh, tell just talk about your book for a second. These last couple of minutes we have. Uh, who is this book for? Is this a book for again? The book is decolonizing therapy, oppression, historical trauma, and politicizing your practice. Is this a book just for mental health practitioners, or is it for you know the everyday person? Yeah, um, for both, right? It's primarily geared to those that have been providing therapy, that have been taught to do therapy. It's my love letter and call to action to them. However, in having this more reciprocal lens and making sure that people know what they're getting, I'm also inviting individuals that receive services like everyday folk, you know, to also pick it up. And believe it or not, lots of folks are interested because they're saying, now I better know the types of questions to ask. Now I better understand. I can kind of interview my therapist before jumping on board, I kind of call it like speed dating. Like you have a right to ask important questions to a person that's gonna hold all your personal information. So it is for everyone, but it is an invitation for anyone who's like an educator, a nurse, a psychiatrist, a therapist, psychologist, you know, anybody who's in the care profession, right. it is really geared towards them as a call of action. Give me your top two questions that you think, again, an individual that's in therapy or someone who's considering going into ther therapy, what are the top two questions they should ask any therapist that they are considering working with? Yeah, I think one of them are, you know, what are your thoughts about generational healing or harm? You know, what are your thoughts? Like, can you just tell me your thoughts about generational trauma? Can you tell me your thoughts about historical trauma? So that's one. Or you can even say, what are your thoughts about racial trauma? Right. Because that right away gets to it, depending on what a person's needs are and what they're coming in for. But the other thing is also, can you tell me a little bit about the work you've done on yourself to yep. politicize yourself and educate yourself? around blank issue. So if I'm queer identified, right, then I'm going to be asking, tell me some of your thoughts about queer policy or queer, you know, work in the counseling process. So getting really specific and not being ashamed to ask direct questions and that therapist should be able to respond back. And if they don't, that's giving you an answer. Yeah, I was going to say, is that going to be a question where the therapist responds with, we're not here to talk about me and my issues. <laughs> We're here to address your issues. Now, that's a really, really great question and a question we should be asking, whether it's a therapist or a MD or anyone that's going to provide us with any kind of medical, uh, you know, therapeutic services, what that person's specific experience is with the issue uh, that you are there to heal. We are out of time. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Mullen, Dr. Young, uh, for the great work that you both are doing for, you know, really trying to transform our mental health uh, services delivery system to make it more responsive to individuals of color, to people who have been historically oppressed in this country. Uh, can't wait to see where this movement goes. Uh, I know it's gaining momentum. Uh, and I know it's going to uh, improve the quality of life of so many individuals. So again, thank you for joining me. Next voice that you hear will be Robin Ayers and the Raw Report right here on KBLA Talk 1580. Don't touch that dial.